welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 11 of Sleep Talk, talking all things sleep, and welcome Moira. Hello Dave, hello everyone, it's good to be back. This month we're talking about healthy sleep and really trying to get to the bottom of that question of what constitutes healthy sleep. You know, we talk to people about sleep all day and ask them, are you sleeping well? What do you think about your sleep? But everyone's got a different definition of what good sleep is and going to draw on experts as well as Moira's opinion because with your interest in health, Moira, this is something that's really close to your heart. It is. I know. You probably have to wind me up later because I think I'd like to talk about this a lot. (laughs) Yeah, what is healthy sleep? What is health itself? How do we define it? How do we measure it? It's a it's a really big question. So stay tuned. This is a this is a good one. So what's been happening this month? Anything that's come up around sleep for you, Moira? Well, a couple of things. Daylight savings mm-hmm. has just ticked over in Australia. Uh, well, some states, not every state has it, of course. And what I thought was really interesting, and I've been digital. We've all been digital for a long time. You know, our phones update automatically. But for some reason, this particular year, just the other day or last week, I just didn't have to really worry about changing the clocks. I think just didn't really have as I think we don't have as many old-fashioned clocks. Maybe that's the thing. And so I set my alarm as normal. Didn't have to worry about changing times. And actually woke up and just thought, well, that was interesting. I did not notice any difference at all. And I know in the past, as a school kid, as a teenager, as a younger person, in recent years, I used to really kind of fret a little bit and lament, oh, you know, oh, my God, it's a really 7 o'clock in my body clock, it's 4 o'clock. I really kind of catastrophize a little bit or sort of notice it a lot more. Uh-huh. So that was that was interesting to me. Yeah. And I started looking around, looking around sort of attitudes and beliefs around daylight savings. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there wasn't really any literature there. It's more maybe attitudes to daylight savings per se, whether yeah. people like it or not. And we know the farmers don't like it and there's various groups that don't like it. And there's, yeah. there's lots and lots of research around productivity and the economy, things like that. But I'm really interested in more, you know, in how we adapt, mm-hmm. our, you know, cognitively our beliefs. How do you go with daylight savings change? It's usually not a big deal. I really like your observation though because, you yeah, know, now I usually – Check, don't wear a watch anymore yeah. it's on, on a yeah. smartphone and the smartphone automatically adjusted yes. and my alarm got me up at yeah. the, the right time. So maybe for me it's the fear of missing out on something. You know, as a kid I do remember we missed church one Sunday morning and that was oh, a, no. whole, yeah, a whole <laughs> hell of a loo because we'd missed the daylight saving. So maybe that's part of the anxiety for me is the time shift and <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm going to be late. Be late, for something. be late for something. But it is a time of the year when, you know, you and I know in people that we see who have trouble with sleep, there is that. Mm. And a really common thing for people with sleep problems, you look ahead at the calendar and where's the threat to sleep? Where's mm. the thing that's going to throw my sleep out and trip me up? And daylight savings is an identifiable thing on the calendar that it people is. can see. And also when you're thinking about sleep restriction or, or you know whatever people call it like the, the the idea that you minimize your time in bed awake and you're setting people up with new sleep regimes if you're doing some cbti with them and that's a tricky thing in daylight savings i've been supervising a, a wonderful couple of people in new zealand who are doing cbti group work over there the first mm-hmm. time they've been running it in, yeah. in new zealand and it came up as a supervision question recently I mean, what do we do? You know, someone's, yeah. you know, they're going to bed and getting up this time. Do, which do we alter it? Do we, what do we do with that? And, and as it turns out, we didn't have supervision around that their daylight saving started before ours. Mm-hmm. And by the time I talked to them about it, the, it was all quite seamless as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they all just, the group just adapted to it. They're actually early risers anyway, yeah. most of them. And it was, it was sort of fine. So interestingly, that's come across my radar. And it's going to go on a roll. The other thing I've noticed or something that's come up with me in the last month or so since we last spoke is I was really excited 
because I, you know how I'm not really a gadgety technical person necessarily. Yes. But, well, <laughs> but what I was excited about is when I updated with the new software for my phone, there's a new thing, which I remember telling you about it. You didn't know about it either. Yeah. And I'm just, I was, I'm just so interested in this because it's, it's part of where you, all the clock and the timing, where they have your alarms and the world clock and it's called bedtime. And I don't know where this came from or whether there was a big, massive, there's been some consultants around it. And um, but it's just such an amazing thing to do is have this on on a world platform, an idea of it, because everyone, pretty much everyone has a, some kind of smartphone these days yeah. in their pocket. And they've got a little message on it where you, in that section where you have your alarms and it's called introducing bedtime. It says going to bed and waking up at the same time every day are keys to healthy sleep. I don't necessarily agree with you know, going to bed at the same time, but certainly mm-hmm. having a routine around it and certainly getting up around the same time yeah. is, is really, really important. I'd emphasise that part of it more. But it has this thing like bedtime can help and answer a few simple questions to set up a recurring wake-up alarm and get a reminder when it's time to go to bed. Nice. So how good's that? Nice. So the theme for this month is healthy sleep. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is it's important, not just in how we communicate when and Moira and myself are working with clients or people with sleep problems, but it's important in how we communicate in the public setting. So how people talk about sleep in the media, it's important for government when they're thinking about funding services for health professionals, putting together public health policies for healthy sleeping populations. It's a really nice opportunity to try and tease out this question. But if we're trying to get at what is healthy sleep, maybe a starting point is let's define health. So how would you go about that, Maura? I think that health is a continuum. And at one end, if you think about it, I guess it's ultimately is poor health like or, or death, like really, really poor health. And then at the other end of the continuum is this notion of sort of optimal, optimal well-being. And I would think in that, that word well-being, I would incorporate, you know, social, biological and emotional slash mental well-being. Mm-hmm. So incorporating those, you know, the, the biopsychosocial model and certainly the BMJ have they talk about this a lot and back in 2000 starting with an editorial back in 2008 uh, a couple of authors called for a global conversation about how we define health mm-hmm. and they got lots and lots of input and on their colleagues and they presented the results of that in a, and this is this two day meeting in 2009 in the Netherlands and in a nutshell they propose a new definition of health quote the ability to adapt and self manage in the face of social physical and emotional challenges and i like that too i like that idea of how we define health yeah. in that it's dynamic not static and it's always about adapting and self-managing basically I mean we have to seek professional help etc but basically the emphasis is on the self-managing things as best as we can yeah. in the circumstances and in the face you know incorporating social physical and emotional challenges mm-hmm. so that's how I see health yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell yeah and that terminology overlaps a bit sometimes the words health and wellness are used yeah. as two separate things, but I like that broader definition of health, which actually encompasses probably both of those things. Mm. So one end of the spectrum being more the disorders and the illness and the stuff we might see in a more healthcare professional practice, yeah. and the other end of the spectrum being what might be called wellness, but mm. it really is just a, fits within a broader definition of health, but across many different domains. And wellness is a word that I remember, well, 20 years ago, I guess. Apparently it's been around since 1961 in North America mm-hmm. in some 
documents I saw, but I certainly didn't use the word wellness until maybe say 20 years ago. I remember we started our, you know, our little clinic here of a health group and we had, I think part of our slogan or part of something on the website or in fact, there wasn't even a website. I think we bagged the domain like that's, you know, it was, it was, people didn't really have websites then, but we were planning to do one. And my brother was teasing me about, well, the word wellness. So he's a sort of an editor at a newspaper and he was doing websites and stuff back then. And he said, what's this wellness? That's not a word. (laughs) Apparently it's used much more in North America and perhaps more in Australia than Apparently in the UK and it's had a big uptake in the last 10 to 20 years for sure, rather than before that. You would have, when we're growing up, would you have heard of the word wellness? No. So what's that mean? Yeah. But clearly it means, you know, the absence or the opposite to illness, Yeah. like being being well, promoting wellness. But yeah, we're not well all the time. I mean, you can tell by my, my voice, anyone who may have heard previous podcasts, know I've got a bit of a cold at the moment, but I'm certainly well socially mm-hmm. and certainly well emotionally. And, and physically have been unwell the last week. So, yeah, so what is, so does that mean I'm unwell? Or yeah. which, you know, what, it's really, we, yeah, we could talk all day. I told you you yeah. have to wind me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> the next section. <laughs> so to try and get uh, some more insights or a different insight into this question of what is healthy sleep, I asked Professor Dan Bicey from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine for his perspective on healthy sleep. Uh, Dan's been an important researcher in healthy sleep and continues to research in this area. So thanks for joining us, Dan. My pleasure to be here. Now, we're going to talk about healthy sleep, and it seems such a simple question, but everyone seems to have a different definition of what healthy sleep is. What's yours? I think of healthy sleep as, as a pattern of sleep and wakefulness that is adapted to the individual's needs and that promotes their optimal physical and mental health. So why is it so important to try and define healthy sleep? Well, I think that it's it's really critical because defining healthy sleep gives us a target to aim for. It gives uh, individuals a target that they can aim for in their personal lives. It gives healthcare providers a target to recommend to their patients. And it gives policymakers uh, something to shoot for in terms of promoting uh, the, the broader health of, of populations at large. Um, I think that defining healthy sleep can be a little bit tricky because since each of us sleep every day, it's easy to, to sort of gloss over it and, and not give it much thought. Um, but I think that it really does uh, warrant our, in- our attention. Yeah, and that definition you talked about is so different often from how we approach things as health professionals. Mm-hmm. You know, we're often just in the, you know, treat disorders and then job's done. Right, right. And do you think, you know, it's a bit of a challenge for us. How do you think we're going to get out of that framework of thinking about sleep? Well, I, I certainly think that it's important and relevant to think about particular sleep disorders. In, in the medical profession, what we mainly spend our time doing is, is treating disorders. And certainly the history of sleep medicine has been one of showing us that sleep disorders uh, have important consequences for our health. Uh, Just to take uh, two very common examples, uh, insomnia and sleep apnea, we know that these conditions are associated with with adverse long-term outcomes, including cardiovascular disease and even mortality. Things like onset of depression are related to these disorders. So I don't want to minimize the importance of identifying those conditions. The problem, I think, is that sleep is something that everyone does 
every day of their life, nearly every day of their life. And sleep disorders only covers a relatively small percent of the population. So while sleep apnea is important to identify, I think the really interesting question from a sleep health perspective is how can every individual in the population maximize their sleep to promote the greatest degree of mental and physical health? Now, in that perspective, people have also gathered a lot of information. We know, for instance, that short sleep duration, as reported by people in the population, is again related to a, a range of, of poor health outcomes, ranging from depression to obesity to diabetes to cardiovascular disease, and again, even mortality. So that's, that's sleep duration. The problem, I think, is that if we equate our sleep health only to sleep duration, then we're missing a lot of aspects of sleep that are also important. So as an example, we also know that quite aside from sleep duration, that a person's perception of their sleep quality is related to all sorts of health outcomes. We know that the timing of sleep is related to all sorts of health outcomes. And furthermore, we know that our sleep is not characterized by just one dimension at a time. So it's not that we have a certain amount of, of sleep every day. It's that we have a certain amount of sleep of a certain quality at a certain time every day. And we, we know that our sleep may be regular every day of the week, or it may differ every day of the week. So I think the, the real key concept of sleep health is that we need to simultaneously consider all of those dimensions of sleep, and all of those dimensions together are what defines optimal sleep health and what promotes our optimal physical and mental health. Yeah, I really love that. But it does go way beyond often what we would normally think of in our clinical practice. Right. Um, and it's a bit of a challenge then to us in the field mm -hmm. to keep moving uh, forward and to shift those. It is, but I think in, in some ways it's also consistent with what medicine can do in more of a, a public health or a health promotion framework. So consider, uh, for instance, in a, in a different field in cardiology, that identifying people who have congestive heart failure, identifying people who have had a myocardial infarction is very, very important. We need to identify those cases and we need to treat those cases. But the fact is that the majority of the population does not have congestive heart failure and the majority of the population has not had a myocardial infarction. That does not mean that the cardiovascular health of all those other people is optimal. So just as, as people have tried to promote optimal cardiovascular health, I think the challenge for those of us in sleep medicine is not only to identify sleep disorders, but to help promote optimal sleep health. Yeah, and when I talk to people about sleep, if I'm running workshops and sort of really ask groups of people what they think good sleep is or what they think healthy sleep is, in actual fact, it's never about the sleep disorders. It's always about how it feels and sometimes about what a, what a bed partner might see or the functional outcome, you know, is it restorative for them and allow them to have good health. Yeah, the public's in that space. Often we're not quite in that space, so we need to sort of move forward with that. That's right. Now, I was interested in your paper in Sleep in 2014, you proposed a scale to measure sleep health. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk us through the different domains in that scale? First of all, I, I guess I would say that the important thing is to reiterate, as I've, as I've already said, that sleep is not just one dimension. 
sleep, uh, good sleep is really an aggregate of multiple dimensions. And in, in my paper, I had proposed five dimensions. I, I've already sprouted another one though. Uh, so now I, I'm, I'm up to six and I think that we can hold it there for a while. But the dimensions that okay. I propose are, are these. They're the regularity of our sleep, their satisfaction, alertness, timing, efficiency, and duration. So the, the acronym currently is RU-SATED. RU is for regularity. Uh, S is satisfaction. A is alertness. T is timing. E is efficiency. And D is duration. You've got to come up with something that starts with you. You need your seventh criteria. <laughs> um, I'll work on that. <laughs> So we we're working with those with those uh, currently six dimensions. Although maybe uh, maybe I'll need to expand it to seven. But something else that I think that I'd like to emphasize is that those seven dimensions can be measured a number of ways. So certainly people can report on each of those dimensions. You can either, you know, just report kind of what your general habitual pattern is. But we can also measure people's sleep on a day-to-day basis through self-report with something like a sleep log or sleep diary. Um, Many of these dimensions are also accessible to objective measures such as uh, actigraphy or motion detectors, very similar to the the type that are available in in, uh, personal monitoring devices like Fitbits and and so forth. And uh, some of these dimensions of sleep are are even amenable to to measurement with, uh, with measures such as a sleep study or, or polysomnography. So one of the things I like about this way of thinking about sleep health is that we actually can measure it through self-report, through behavior, and through physiology. Yeah, I really like that too. And being able to try and quantify sleep health rather than it being this nebulous, intangible right. sort of thing and we we feel if, okay, you're functioning okay, well, sleep yeah. must be okay because you, you're feeling okay. Yeah, and I think that you know the the previous reach research that our that people in our field have done has really pointed the way to to what some of the optimal um, variables may may be for for each of these dimensions. So, for instance, uh, in terms of sleep duration, to take the one that has received the most attention in the literature, we we have a pretty good idea that for for adults, most adults have the lowest health risk when they get something like seven to nine hours of sleep at at night. So we can sort of uh, distinguish that good sleep health probably includes a duration of sleep between seven and nine hours. So we know that we see health risks start to increase with as little as six hours of sleep at night and certainly with four, but also on the other end that, that, that sleep durations that are too long are also associated with poor health outcomes. So again, with, with these different dimensions, it's not completely guesswork as to what the, the ideal parameter is. To take one other example, for people who are not night shift workers, we know that uh, in, in the population, the middle point of our sleep typically occurs between the hours of 2 o'clock a.m. and 4 o'clock a.m. So if a person's sleep is not centered on approximately 3 o'clock a.m., then they may you know, they may suffer uh, health risks associated with a sleep that's too early or too late. In terms of the efficiency of sleep, again, some health risks go up when a person takes longer than, say, 30 minutes to either fall asleep or, or 30, 30 minutes of wakefulness in the middle of the night. So, again, my point is that the, the previous work that people have done 
has actually pointed us to what may be more or less optimal values for each of these different parameters. Yeah, and where do you think this concept of sleep health is going? So how do you hope this unfolds over the next few years? Well, uh, the first thing that, that my colleagues and I uh, have been doing is we've really been trying to take advantage of the large amount of data that has already been collected in various types of, of uh, uh, research studies, typically large cohort studies that ha have studied um, fairly large numbers of people in the population uh, and, who, and studies that have measured health outcomes as they unfold longitudinally. So what we plan to do is to look at some of those health cohorts to kind of retrospectively define for each individual how they were doing on each of these different sleep health dimensions, and then to look at their follow-up data to see if indeed better sleep health was associated with better outcomes and if worse sleep health was associated with worse outcomes. Yeah, that's great. And it'd be helpful if we can have that sort of data and even show third-party payers like insurers and yeah. governments that investing in sleep health actually will produce dividends and produ increase the health of the, pop the population. And I think from the, from the health, from the health uh, payers and providers' perspective too, one of the things that this, this approach adds is that um, it, it really can be added on top of kind of the, the more, more what I would call the sleep medicine approach. That is, you know, you may identify a person who has sleep apnea and by all means, uh, you know, that person needs uh, positive airway pressure to treat their sleep apnea, but that treatment doesn't guarantee that they have good sleep health. So if that person is using their CPAP but still only getting four hours of time in bed at night, or if they're you know, not going to bed until four in the morning, their health may still be at risk on the basis of, of sleep. So, so we can kind of add this uh, sleep health promotion aspect on top of the treatment for their sleep disorder. So it's really just kind of an uh, an orthogonal, uh, an independent way of thinking about our sleep. Great. Thanks very much for that, Dan. And thanks for challenging us on our concepts of what we really think of and what we're trying to shoot for with healthy sleep. Great. Oh, well, I love listening to Dan Bicey. I think he's obviously you know, so exciting. He's so visionary. He's so experienced. I love that he's thinking around sleep. It's just exactly what we're talking about before, about generally what is health and is it just freedom of disease and all that sort of stuff. Again, like, yeah, so I think I totally agree that sleep, looking at healthy sleep is we need to not just look at sleep disorders and, you know, all that, measuring all that and giving people diagnoses. Now, obviously that's really important. I'm not, yeah. I'm not one, not about to jump on that bandwagon. However, it does highlight other aspects of things we can't measure, for instance. You know, the, oh, we can measure people's subjective, you know, their self-report, but sometimes it does come down to that kind of a thing. Like, you know, what their view is on what sleep they have or haven't had, despite what our objective markers are telling us. So that's that's a really exciting thing. And he's looking, knowing that we need to get better at being able to measure what healthy sleep is, not just the stand. We've had in our sleep world, as those people are listening, everyone, everyone knows really that's the, the PSG, the, the the standard sleep study, the polysomnogram, and various like really good instruments, really good tools. But still, sometimes we're not necessarily capturing exactly what oh, healthy sleep is. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many times that we're working with people and we'll get a beautiful, detailed polysomnograph recording, but how it feels to the person yeah. who's having that sleep experience 
is completely discrepant from what the polysomnographic recording shows, which just highlights often for people, healthy sleep is about the experience and people can get very tied up in the how it yes. feels. Yeah. For yeah. us as healthcare professionals, it can be very tied up in the, well, what do we measure? But there's actually bits that fall between, between both of yeah, those gaps. They fall between the cracks. Picked, a bit. Up, picked up with either of those. Like, you know, someone I just saw just this afternoon who her you know, sleep study showed really quite extraordinary, really atypical sleep in that it was better than the average person for her age. You know, five REM episodes, 45% slow wave sleep, 20% REM, you know, pretty, pretty good sleep profile. Yeah. But mind you, stacks and stacks of spontaneous arousals. Mm-hmm. So poor quality in that sense. But the essence, she thought there was no sleep. Yeah. Or very, very. She thought it was at least an hour sleep latency and there'd been one minute. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that it's really her subjective feelings of well-being during the day. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I'm – when yeah. we talk about what is healthy sleep, that's all well and good. Like we can look at – we can, you know, measure sleep, you know, mm-hmm. with some objective markers, et cetera. But how do we – really the correlates of that is probably what we're thinking about more, don't you think? Like how – what does that mean then to the person? Yeah with what sleep they have or haven't had. And I really like a functional definition of healthy sleep. So if people are vital during the day, not got mental and physical disorders, feeling like they're well in a range of domains that you've talked about with the health definitions, that to me would really encompass healthy sleep. Less about how it feels or what I would measure in a sleep lab, but more about is it sustaining someone and enabling them to live a healthy and vital life. And then in that broader definition of health that you talked about that encompasses lots of other domains and not just what you know we may think of as healthcare professionals yeah. part of my experience in trying to look outside of a medical practice and where I normally practice in terms of how people might manage sleep and health in a broader sense has been the work I've been doing with Golden Door mm-hmm. and they tend to work much more in that health or even you know what might have been called wellness sort of mm-hmm. end of the spectrum mm-hmm. so of the not the illness part of the health domain. So to get the insights of their approach and some of how they would approach people feeling healthy and optimising their health, particularly with regards to sleep, I had the chance to talk to Bridget Walsh and Bridget's the general manager of Golden Door Health Retreat in the Hunter Valley. Thanks, David. Well, Golden Door is a place where people can come and they can retreat so they can get away from their busy, busy lives, which we hear about all the time. We've been going for 22 years. Uh, We're in a beautiful environment in the Hunter Valley and people come for a whole range of reasons, but mainly it's around looking after their health and well-being and establishing some new goals. And what's the general philosophy that you try to engage in with your guests here at Golden Door? Yeah, well, our philosophy really is around holistic health. So it's bringing the body, the mind and the spirit all together. We like to say it's the science and the soul coming together, being integrated. And we do that in a beautiful, non-judgmental environment where we have experts in the field to help people kickstart their health and wellness goals. And most importantly, it's not just about what happens here at Golden Door, but what they can take home with them. So what are the sustainable tools that they can take with them and implement into their lives? In my role as a medical specialist, and I reckon too often and I'm stopping short, just managing the disorder and not extending into that wellness and you know broader aspects of health. And I think that's actually how we can work really, really nicely together. We 
have a great saying at Golden Door that health is either your greatest asset or your greatest liability. So we want it to be people's greatest asset and we're a strong believer in prevention. And of the people that are coming to Golden Door, why do they come? What are some of the things they're looking for help with? Well, people come for many, many reasons, but I can narrow it down to probably four key themes. The first one is just simply rest. People are exhausted and so they need time out just to rest. The second one is really around coming for a specific purpose in mind to kickstart some sort of healthy behaviour. So that could be maybe they're recently diagnosed with diabetes, so they want to learn how they manage their diabetes. So healthy eating, physical activity, etc. It could be to lose some weight or kickstart a fitness program. The third reason is really interesting. This is a, there's a theme around loss. So this could be perhaps um, loss of a loved one, loss of a colleague. It could be around loss of a job or even maybe loss of your identity. So there is this theme around, around loss. The fourth one really is where you've reached the crossroads in life. So some people come and they've, they're sort of questioning, well, What's this all about? Where am I headed? Am I happy? I don't feel like I've got that zest and vitality in my life anymore, so what can I do about it? So they're probably the, the four key areas, which is really, really interesting. And those first couple is people that I'm seeing in my practice who are having trouble with sleep. That's often what they're looking for as well. It's busyness, and that busyness is Im- impacting on sleep. So of the guests that come to Golden Door, do many of them have sleep problems? We would say about a third to a half of our guests would report having some sort of sleep problems and that, that varies. Some of it is that you know they're just not sleeping so well as a general statement to those who actually do have insomnia or have sleep apnea. And that would be my experience too in the years I've been coming and doing the guest speaker program and other workshops at Golden Door. Yeah, a high proportion of guests do seem to be having trouble with sleep and certainly are looking for good sleep advice. So part of Sleeping Well's managing general health, so physical fitness, nutrition, stress. So what's Golden Door's approach to those things? Yes, well, um, we have a wonderful approach where people can opt in and out. They can do as much or as little as they like. But we do know that people who involve themselves in the program really get the most out of the experience as well. So we're very encouraging of people to participate in our physical activity program. And we have such a range for people. So for example, it could be the high intensity activity to the low intensity mind body type classes. So it could be the yoga versus the boxing or the spin. But again, each to their own. In terms of meditation, yoga, so what we can do to relax the mind, some of those tools for stress management. Again, people are welcome to come to our seminar series to to help them in in that area or participate in the classes. Also, we have a very community-focused approach here. So, for example, even the restaurant at mealtimes is all about letting go of your electronic devices and actually learning to communicate with, with people. And sometimes the simplest of conversations with fellow guests reveals that other people have problems that are similar to your problems, whether that's around sleep or something else. You learn things from other people or it just helps you put your own problems in perspective and perhaps it's not as bad as what you think it is. So again, we have a whole range of things that people can pick and choose from education, movement, nutrition, restoration, exploration in a beautiful supportive environment. And a lot of those stress management tools are exactly what we would use in our practice if we're managing people with insomnia. So mindfulness, for example, that we'd use as part of cognitive behavioural therapy or yoga-based strategies. So one of the things I've noticed in the years I've been coming here is people do give themselves permission to take time out to work on their health, which is often different to what I see in the office where you know they're on the mobile phone in the waiting room, they're tapping their feet, waiting to get going because they've got to check the car park and get home 
cook dinner. So, so what can you do in a residential retreat that someone couldn't get if they were trying to do the same thing at home? Well, I think it's that great circuit breaker. So you're away from your normal environment, from all those distractions and all those um, expectations that people have of you or you have of yourself. So you get away from it all and you're in a structured environment where you've got professional people to help support you. Um, but essentially, it's about empowering the individual to do uh, what they can whilst they're here. And look, there's a beautiful saying. It's actually from a tribe in Papua New Guinea. Their saying is that knowledge is just a rumour until you feel it in your muscles. So I relate that to Golden Door. Until you practice it, until you really put it into practice, all that knowledge into practice and experience it and feel it, so you feel fantastic when you've been eating well, your your whole energy levels go up after you've been exercising, you learn to relax from your meditation and, and yoga. Once you feel how amazing that is, then it just becomes a part of you. It's integrated, it becomes a part of your life. So there's no room there for guilt when you go back home you know it's essential that you need to look after yourself if you're going to be the best for yourself but also best for those people around you as well and I really like that you know when I'm trying to describe to people what a residential retreat can offer and what you can offer at Golden Door it's often you know I'd say it's a great sampler in one morning you could sample Pilates and Tai Chi and yoga and meditation whereas if you're trying to do that in your busy life in Melbourne it might take you a couple of months to get to just one class of of each of those it's a, a fast track Uh, way of getting all those things and what I'm really constantly surprised at I don't know why I've been in with Golden Door for over 10 years I've met over 14,000 guests but it's amazing that within five or seven days the experience can be transformational for so many people that they can go away just feeling so amazing that when they go back home and they take those tools with them that actually it has a real impact on their life and the people around them. So then how do you go with transitioning people to home. So they've taken the time out, developed the skills, been sort of taught the skills of relaxation, slowing down, got into the physical activity. How do they then get that golden door moment? And for me, often what I see with people, it's about permission, getting them to give themselves permission to take time out each day to do those things. But how do you get people to integrate it at home? Very good question. Permission is important. It's also about setting up rituals. Uh, So there was an interesting study done and it was on students who were involved in a learning of some sort and they found that there were three groups. That Group A, they took on the learnings but they didn't change anything. Group B took on the learnings, they changed a little bit, and uh, but they went back to their old ways. But Group C, they took on the learnings and they changed the learnings. It became sustainable, it became integrated in their life. So the researchers were very interested in the difference between Group B and uh, Group C. And they found that Group B relied on motivation and on willpower, of which we know you've only got limited amounts of. But Group C relied on rituals, about making it a habit. It's like cleaning your teeth. It's something you do every day. And I think once you've come to a retreat and you feel amazing you've tapped into that then when you go back home you're more motivated to then set up those rituals to then make it integrated into everyday life great really nice point Bridget and I really like the work you were doing and I think almost challenging us in the healthcare professional field in sleep to move beyond treating disorders but actually look at healthy sleep and I really like the work that you guys do in that space in helping to promote healthy sleep thanks David So thanks for that interview with Bridget, Dave. She's a really passionate, informative person. Yeah, and they run an amazing program. I really, really admire what they do. So what do you think are the, what are your take-home messages or what did you overall draw from that interview with Bridget? What they do is really good at the health and wellness end of the spectrum. Mm. So when I sit back and try and think about where my role fits in 
healthy sleep. I'm much more at the sleep disorders end of the spectrum where people coming to see me initially and not feeling well or they're feeling very distressed may actually have a sleep disorder like insomnia or or something else. And I'll work with them and as they begin to recover, the priority then shifts from illness into optimising wellness as people shift along that health spectrum. And that's really where almost you shift from a medical practice sort of framework into a more golden door health retreat type (laughs) of framework because we're each working in the same goal to get Mm. people shifting towards better health, but just at different parts of the spectrum, if you like. Yeah. And I think, and it's always, uh, it's always much easier, say in a golden door setting. I mean, it's it's idyllic for starters. It's pretty good. (laughs) I haven't been there, but it obviously it would be gorgeous and but that people are off work for those days or weeks at least yep. they don't have their normal commitment so that's harder in our setting uh, I often talk to people about um, those sorts of you know they might go to health retreats or they go to bali or they go somewhere or ashrams in india they have these yep. weeks where they do sleep well yep. and they feel well and they come back into this world and it's all awful again. So I often talk to my patients about trying to wherever we can construct get the parts of the retreat and get them into the day-to-day life wherever we can, like in the busy, in the catastrophe, like in in the work schedule with the kids, with all the busyness, with the meetings, trying to still maintain a bit of equilibrium. And that's that's the hardest thing is the balancing and talking about sort of that health definition I talked about earlier with the BMJ is about sort of adapting and responding to the challenges Mm -hmm. and not not catastrophizing or feeling like letting it get the better of us, like getting overwhelmed. So I like what you were talking about too, That because I would say, I mean, we were talking earlier that I I wonder sometimes I think we deal in hospitals particularly in our sort of clinics, I would say deal in illness or with people already unwell rather than wellness. But then but that's good for you to remind me that well we do we sort of we treat the illness and the unwellness with a model of trying to you know working towards more optimal well-being yeah so thinking about the continuum that i talked about in my definition that it, and you slide you can slide up and down and it might not be perfect at any stage yeah and that's what we need to get better at adapting to that particularly with say insomnia yes i'm not well every night but maybe you know maybe i get i get three or four good nights a week it's not optimal necessarily but it's probably okay maybe yeah. it's not the end of the far end of the spectrum of of unhealthiness and knowing that we can, yeah, we can shift along that continuum. Thanks, Moira. So if you're looking for more information on healthy sleep, one of the sites that Moira mentioned is the National Sleep Foundation in the United States. Their website is sleep.org and a really nice website, very friendly, good layout, lots of really nice uh, information about sleep. Now, I don't think we've really answered the question for you definitively about what is healthy sleep, but I think if you hearing us talk about it and hearing other experts in the field talk about it, you do get an insight that it's controversial, it's evolving, it's a definition that's not set in stone, that's variable from person to person. So don't assume when you're talking to someone about sleep that they know exactly what you're talking about. Of you know, Someone says, did you sleep well? Are you having good sleep? Because everyone's definition can vary a bit. To continue with the theme that we've already discussed, I think the tip of the month for me is definitely focused on thinking about health and and thinking about healthy sleep in particular is our ability to adapt and self-manage. So the ability to actually roll with the punches a bit more, mm-hmm. roll with the good times and the bad times, know, have more trust in our systems, more trust in how robust we really can be. That's definitely – so that's also – this is a that's a tip for, you know, sleep practitioners but also for people who are suffering with inadequate sleep or, you know, feeling 
sleep deprived to actually just focus a little bit more on thinking a bit more about the definition that we you know talking about that adapting and and self-managing so dave what's been your pick of the month i'm really enjoying a book i'm reading at the moment not surprisingly it's on insomnia <laughs> you need so, to broaden your genres no <laughs> yeah insomnia tech insomnia tech you know that, that's about it yeah. no, so this one's called insomnia a cultural history and it's by Eleanor Summers Bremner, who's a lecturer in the English department at the University of Auckland. It was written a few years ago, oh. around 2008. But it's a really good book about just the history of how different societies have thought about sleep and mm. talked about insomnia. Right. And it really does, the, or some of the take-homes for me about are a lot about how we conceptualise sleep around societal expectations. And if you look historically at how people have slept... Yeah. It's been a lot about the expectation of how sleep should be yes. and people get distressed when it's yeah. not as it should be. Well, that remains true today. Absolutely. It? Absolutely. A, yeah, so that's the fascinating thing. the fascinating thing for me that society has evolved over the years about what we think should, sleep should be, but what hasn't changed is when people people's sleep doesn't meet what they think yeah. it should be, yes. there's a distress yeah. around that. Oh, great. Is that a like an easy, quick read or is it a big, thick Bible I know. It's book? actually quite readable. So, yeah. it's, a, so yeah. it's about 160 pages or so, yeah. small, yeah. Book, small book, not, yeah. not too big. Yeah. So you know, I'm really enjoying it. Excellent. I'll read it after you. So what's coming up? What's our – well, I know – yeah, so, so this month, I'm excited you, you about know, next month. Yeah, as you know, we're we're preparing for presentations and some of the things at the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific meeting, which is on in Adelaide from October 20 to 22. Both involved in a number of presentations and things at the meeting, and you know, I generally find that a very rewarding meeting and lots of good professional interactions. And there's yeah, also a lot of great. media about sleep around that time, so look out for articles in the media about sleep. A lot of the research does catch mm. the eye of the media it and does. it's an opportunity for us to put out some positive messages around sleep. And the thing for next month's podcast is dreaming. And we're going to talk about dreams, what do they mean, get a little bit into maybe how we dream and how the brain operates during dreaming, but also try and tease out some of the social and cultural beliefs about where dreams fit in terms of consciousness and what actually is the dream state. So look out for that. And that'll be published on November the 7th. Great. Looking forward to it. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've got any suggestions, send them to us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, send us a review on iTunes or you can subscribe via any of the podcast apps or the Sleep Talk app in the iOS store. Thanks a lot, Moira. Thanks, Dave. Talk next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 